Proverbs 4, 11 and 12 express the sentiments of parents who wish to mold their children in wisdom's way. For the first 18 years of our children's lives, from cradle to college, we parents try our best to instill in our kids sound judgment. Through osmosis, modeling, and teaching, we hope our children will learn to evaluate situations and discern the right course of action based on God's values. We think of the day when we finally sever the umbilical cord and send off our children out into the world. I am already thinking about it myself. I'm already counting down the days and, and years when our kids, my kids, go off to school. Some 900 days or two and a half years for my son and some 2,000 days or five and a half years for my daughter. So I try to tell them that wisdom is a gift which begins with respect and reverence for God and grows with obedience to God's known will, to his commands. This is why I take them to church. We go to church on Sabbath after Sabbath, after Sabbath to, to learn to worship God better and to learn to be obedient to his will. Today, we continue to discover wisdom beyond the first steps. Proverbs 4, 11, and 12 gives us our initial bearing. It communicates to us a passing of the torch, a rite of passage, a handing down of, of years of insights from parents to children. But what's, what's more, it communicates wisdom as a movement or a progress along a well-beaten path. It says, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the path of right uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Let me quickly summarize these verses for us. The first thing we notice from this passage is that wisdom is like a road, not a treasure chest. In other words, wisdom isn't a treasure we possess and bequeath to our, our progeny uh, before we die. Wisdom, quite simply, is a road we travel on. And the second thing we notice is, in this passage, is that since wisdom is a road, a well-beaten path we travel on, the best way to teach wisdom is to travel down the road ourselves. However we adults will have done, or hopefully we adults will have done our fair share amount of reflection on our own experiences. We remember that wisdom is not the sheer accumulation of experiences, but the thoughtful reflection on lessons learned from experience. At some point or other, our journey down this road will come to an end and we will cease to be there for our children and they will have to travel down this road on their own. So while we can, we try to talk to them and we walk with them down the same road ourselves. We let them observe us. We open our lives to them. We slow down so we can reflect together about lessons learned. And we aren't afraid to make mistakes and admit our own mistakes. In fact, our mistakes are some of the best moments for gaining insights. And our kids, well, they're always observing and always listening and always taking it all in. 
But this passage can also be turned on its head. Everything I said to parents just now are just as applicable to our youth. So, youth, yes, you don't have to wait until you are older and have your own children to walk down this path. You can walk down wisdom's way now with your friends, with your classmates, your cousins, and be each other's guides along the way. So I've smoothed out the wording of this passage, and here's what it says once again. Along wisdom's path, I taught you. I led you down a straight path. As you walk, your step will not be obstructed. As you run, you will not falter. But what does it mean to walk down wisdom's way? Well, it means basically that we commit ourselves to a lifelong journey of discovery. You say, well, discovery of what? Of what the ordinary things in human and non-human life reveal about how God wants us to live and what God wants us to do in specific situations. The goal of discovery is insights for living, and the goal of insight is to put our lives in harmony with God's as an expression of our reverence and our respect for Him. Let me explain. American mathematician and meteorologist Edward Norton Lawrence came up with, the, with chaos theory, a branch of mathematics which seeks to understand the behavior of dynamic systems in nature, like the weather, for example, that are highly sensitive to initial conditions. In 1969, Lawrence coined the term butterfly effect to highlight his insight into these dynamic systems. And what is this insight? Well, it's really a very simple one. Small causes can have large effects. Imagine, he says, a butterfly flapping its wings somewhere far away. Several weeks later, the disturbance caused by this butterfly can have significant effect on the intensity, the direction, and even the outcome of a typhoon far away across the world. Now multiply this thousands of times with, say, monarch butterflies fluttering their wings down there close to Mexico City. Imagine what effect this could have in the world. Something so small. Now we say, what moral insight can we glean from here? Well, here's one from scripture. What about the disproportionate effect of the small but fiery tongue described in James 3 verse 5? So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. The tongue, a small part of our body, can be a mighty force for good or for evil. We can build or destroy with our tongues and with the words that come out of our tongues. A small act can have huge consequences. It is the law of cause and effect at work, yes, although the cause is disproportionately smaller compared to the effect. Unlike Newton's third law of motion, which says that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So we take this insight and we walk with it. And we talk, as we talk to people around us, we watch our words so we don't end up causing harm disproportionate to the size of our own tongues. And still, more insights pop up as we think about it. We think, for example, of Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, which says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
as another application of this butterfly effect. That is, that malcontents might be few, but they can ruin an entire church. And we take this insight with us the next time we sit in the church or church or school board and act wisely when we see some malcontent trying to tear down our church or our school. Or the next time we hear whisperings in the hallways of our churches. God's creation, you see, is this interconnected laws of nature often applied to human nature. And we can learn a lot by observing both. And the more insights we, we gain, the more we appreciate the wisdom of God, and the more we get excited about worshiping God. And what about obedience to God's known will, to His specific commands? Well, we have said that obedience grows wisdom. Why is this? It is because God's commands are, are our most direct path to the moral structure of God's creation. We aren't left wondering what they are. They are given to us. They're right there, plain and simple. Even a shallow understanding of obedience to these commands can have immediate effect if they're all obeyed in society. This world would be a very different place if, say, all the Ten Commandments were obeyed by everyone all at once. These commands, so far as these commands represent general principles, are the distillation of the moral structure God has put in His own creation. Let's take the Ten Commandments, for example. Scripture calls them the Ten Words. They are ten iterations or ten applications of one principle, the principle of love. They are very deep, and together they form the basis of God's general will for all of us. Psalm 19, in fact, comes very close to equating this, or the Torah, specifically the Ten Commandments, with wisdom itself. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are, are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much pure gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings on the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is a great reward. There's a lot of wisdom in these commandments. There's a lot of wisdom in God's laws. In the first place, they delineate God's general will for all of us. Imagine drawing a large circle and then standing inside that circle. The commandments bound us in, and inside the circle, there are a lot of things we can do that are still considered within the will of God. So long as we are within the circle drawn by the commandments, we will be fine. But even obedience to God's known commands has its own limits. We have discovered this for ourselves in our own Adventist history. No, the problem is not the law or the commandments. The problem is often with us. Let me explain. Obedience to commands presupposes this one thing. It presupposes that God prefers to speak through his sticky notes. Let me be clear. 
Obedience to God's direct commands is always the right course of action insofar as this action takes us. But it has its limits. For one, it makes the quest for wisdom a dry pursuit. I remember the time when an old college dorm mate of mine gave us the silent treatment by posting sticky notes all over our room. He stayed silent for about a day or two and let his sticky notes do the speaking for him. But surely, God is not like this. If he is a person, a real person, he must talk to us like a real person sooner or later. And for another, wisdom through law-keeping alone can easily turn into a methodical and rigid tallying of rules, of do's and don'ts, an insatiable quest for outward performance, a never-ending search for some implication or corollary to obey that has so far evaded our attention. Here, wisdom is equated with a kind of high-pitched devotion that is as unsustainable as it is destructive. This isn't biblical wisdom. J.I. Packer is right when he says, Minute application of the general principles of God's law is not a full description of the path along which God guides his people. The truth is that a person living and thinking that way is mentally grooved in a style that leaves out of account something vital in our quest for guidance, namely that gift from the Holy Spirit through the written word that is creative, humanizing, outward-looking, and self-effacing and profoundly perceptive, the gift which is properly named wisdom. Now, creative, humanizing, outward-looking, self-effacing and profoundly perceptive wisdom cannot be gained while God remains silent all the time. It cannot be gained by merely upping our obedience to the letter of the law. How true are the words of 2 Corinthians 3, 6? For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It can only be gained wisdom as God talks to us directly through the Holy Spirit and reveals to us His specific will. And if we are to teach ourselves and our children true wisdom beyond obedience to rules, we must become familiar with how the Spirit talks to us, how the Spirit communicates with us and gives us guidance for for, uh, God's specific will. And we will start unpacking this, this coming Sabbath. In closing, this Monday we will be celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King's, King Jr.'s 92nd birthday. To channel Dr. King a little bit, I started reading his letter from Birmingham Jail, his response to certain white pastors supportive of the civil rights struggle, but advising against nonviolent protests and the speed of change being demanded. Dr. King's response explains why nonviolent resistance is right and why waiting is not an option. Let me quote a few paragraphs from this letter in closing. April 16, 1963. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticisms that cross my desk, 
my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine good goodwill, and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence, but we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have vicious, you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim. When you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters. When you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain your, to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is close to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old boy or son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night, in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When, you first, when your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title of missus, when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stands, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand how legitimate and unavoidable impatience. I have traveled the length and breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states. On sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. 
I have beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. Over and over have I found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barnett dripped with words of interposition and nullification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call to defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negroes, Negro men and women, decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? If I have said anything in this letter that overstates the truth and indicates an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King Jr. Wise words flowed from his pen and we ask, we ask this question, where did it come from? Well, it came from the depth of his spirit as it was spoken to by the Holy Spirit himself. There is no other way. There is only one way. And this is the way. This is wisdom's way. Let us pray. Father God, we want to grow in our wisdom. We want to be led not merely by your silence, but by your speech. We want to be led by your spirit. We long to be talked to. We long to hear your inner voice in our hearts. Help us to become familiar with wisdom's way, with how you talk to us, how you communicate with us, how you guide us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds. And help us, teach us to impart what we discover to others along wisdom's way. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.